good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Now, online, you can catch us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts for the audio-only version. Uh, you just have to search Faith on Hill for all of our audio podcasts. You can find video on our YouTube page or on our Facebook page, and you can follow us at Faith on Hill for social media. It's summertime. Most of our small groups are taking a pause. There are a few that haven't. So if you want to email small groups at faithonhill.com for more information, uh, you can. We are also starting Lawn Chair Church, church out in the field this Sunday. So if you're watching online, Welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, in person, we're going to be outdoors for the next several weeks, and so that means you can show up, uh, bring a beach blanket or a lawn chair, a camping chair, whatever you feel like, and uh, we've got pop-up tents for shade. Some people like to sit in the shade. Some people like to be outdoors. Whatever you choose, it's really chill. We really enjoy it, and we're looking forward to starting that. We are starting a new series this week. We're going to be looking over the summer at the life of the prophet Elijah. So if you have a Bible, turn to the book of First Kings, chapter 17. The book of 1 Kings, chapter 17, says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, he's the king of Israel, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kirith Ravine east of the Jordan River. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food from here. So he did what the Lord had told him, and he went to the Kirith Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And there the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. This is God's word. Well, we're starting a new series looking at the life of Elijah the prophet. You know, he might be the most influential prophet or the prophet who had the widest body of work to not get his own book. Yet he is referenced all throughout the New Testament. He's incredibly uh, influential and important in terms of uh, Jewish history, in terms of Christian thought and theology. Uh, he is a guy who is incredibly influential, both in his prophetic work and, and in the times that he's referenced and mentioned later on. Now, he kind of comes out of nowhere, but we're told that he is from uh, Tishba in, Gal in Gilead. I almost said Galilee, but Gilead, which is actually not too far from the Galilee. He comes from a people with a bad history. Now, you and I would go, oh, well, okay, he's from this place called Gilead, wherever that is. But you do a quick Google search, you find the map. Gilead is east of the Jordan River. Why is that significant? Now, when I was in grad school, I had a, a professor who uh, began every class by making you draw a map of the Holy Land. And he had like five or six specific geographical features he wanted every one of his students to be able to draw from memory. And the Jordan River figures big because the Jordan River was the, you know, western, or sorry, eastern boundary of the promised land. They, they crossed the Jordan to get into the promised land. It was a big deal. But why is it that there were people 
who are supposed to be living in the promised land who are living east of the Jordan River. Well, this is because two tribes, Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh, when the people of Israel got to the promised land, they said to Moses, hey, we're good. We don't need to enter. We just want to stay here. We don't want to enter the land that God has sent us to. We don't want to be obedient to God and go in. We are fine staying right here. This is good enough. And so they never entered into the promised land. And so the compromise that was reached, as Moses said, fine, you still have to come and help your brothers to take this land uh, as that God commanded us to take. But fine, we'll assign you portions over here. They never entered in. Then in Joshua chapter 22, that's Numbers 32 that they decided not to go into the promised land. Then in Joshua chapter 22, when they had finished their obligations to the rest of the tribes of Israel, uh, Joshua, Moses' successor, said, all right, you guys have fulfilled your obligation. You can go home and be at peace. So they go back, at, they go back to their uh, lands on the other side of the Jordan River, and they establish this large altar for, for purposes of worship. And it's large and it's big and it can be seen by everybody. And it almost causes a civil war. And there's this whole thing about it. And they're like, what are you doing? You're setting up your own altar. You're, you're worshiping. You're either trying to worship Yahweh in ways that he is forbidden, or you have already given yourself over to idol worship, to pagan practice. And they come back and they said, no, 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 no. We just built this as a reminder. Hey, we're still here. We're part of you guys. Because we're afraid that since we're over here on the other side of the river, you're going to forget about us. Or one day we will come to worship at the tabernacle and you won't let us in. And so whether that's true or not, who can say? But, but it began there, this division. And they were the first of the northern tribes of Israel to be conquered and to be carried away into captivity as the Assyrian Empire came down and took the northern kingdom of Israel. So they have a bad history. They have a history of rebellion, a history of being kind of standoffish to everybody else. They have a history of potentially into idol worship and pagan practice. They're not a, a place that's like the hotbed of worshiping God. It's it's not a stretch to say it's kind of like living out here in the Pacific Northwest. We're, we're isolated from the rest of the country. Uh, we have never been the Bible Belt. Uh, our, our denomination actually sent some guys to this uh, big conference uh, a few years ago. And as they were there, the people that were running the thing were like, oh, you guys are from Oregon? Yeah, none of this applies to you. Because it's so different out there in the Pacific Northwest that all the things that we're talking about, they apply or they work here in Alabama or they, they apply or they work in Texas or they apply or they work in Iowa. You guys are out there doing your own thing. So he's from a people that have a bad history. And then he's living in evil days. In the previous chapter, 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30, speaking of Ahab the king, it says, Ahab, the son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of Yahweh than any of those who came before him. Now, in your Bible, and, and in mine too, it'll say, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those who came before him. But any time you see the word Lord in all capitals, L-O-R-D, all capitals, it means that it is the the, the name of God that was either Yahweh or Jehovah, we're not 100% sure. Um, 
and it was unspeakable. The Hashem is what it's still referred to in Judaism. The Hashem, the name of God. And in ancient Hebrew, they didn't have vowels. And the reason they didn't have vowels was to save space on scrolls and parchment, right? Like you have a, a scroll might be just the, as big as the height of an animal. And so you have to save space. There's only so much room on a tablet or on a scroll to write something. So to be economical and efficient, they didn't have vowels. You just kind of knew from context how to say something. But since you have a name that they didn't say, we're not 100% sure how it's supposed to be said. So one thought is Jehovah. Another thought, which is kind of the one that I go towards, is Yahweh. And so when we see the Lord in all capitals, we understand it's not just speaking of God but it's speaking specifically of the God of the people of Israel. It's speaking specifically of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is as opposed to the gods of the people around them, as opposed to the gods of Egypt, as opposed to the gods of the Assyrian Empire or the Babylonian Empire, as opposed to the gods of the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Moabites and on all of these different groups that are around him, as opposed to the gods of the Phoenicians, the, the people of the sea. This is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the God who made the covenant with Israel. I will be your God. You will be my people. Ahab, the king, was more evil than any of his predecessors in the eyes of God. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, but he also married Jezebel, the daughter of Ithabal, king of the Sidonians and began to serve Baal and worship him. So the tribes or peoples surrounding Israel had this sort of general pantheon of gods. And Baal, has, it's kind of you know, the English way of saying it, it's probably more accurate to say Baal, or Baal was their, their main god, and he was in charge of the rains and the crops and all the things that brought them life. And then they had the Ashtoreth. And you see that all throughout the Old Testament. It'll talk about worshiping at the Ashtoreth poles. And Ashtoreth was the goddess of fertility and new life. And then there was a, another god, Mot, who was like the god of the dead, sort of a, you know, a precursor to Hades, the Greek god of the underworld. All of these gods had their all these pantheons had their sort of different roles. You know, in Egypt, right, when Moses was dealing with the Pharaoh and then there were these plagues, each plague corresponded to one of the Egyptian gods. Oh, you have your sun god. I'm going to blot out the sun. You have your river god. I'm going to turn the river to blood. You have, you know, your god of, of this, your god of that. And then God, Yahweh, the true god, was saying, look, I'm dominant over all these things. Ahab who was supposed to be the king of Israel, the king of the people of Yahweh, the king of the people who were in the covenant relationship with God. He abandoned all that. He married this gal from outside of God's people and then abandoned Yahweh and turned to worshiping Baal, just like all of the people around. Now, what comes with that? Baal worshiped involved horrific things, including at times child sacrifice. It says that he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. So he built in the Holy Land a temple for the worship of pagan gods. It says that he made an Ashtoreth pole and did more to arouse the anger of Yahweh, the God of Israel, than did all the other kings of Israel before him. So he establishes this temple for Baal. He sets up Ashtoreth worship, not hidden, not secret, all throughout the Old Testament before this. 
There were references to hidden places, high places where these sort of things might have been happening. But now this is public. This is out there in your face. And to worship Astra was to basically commit ritual sexual immorality uh, publicly. That you think about like these sort of pagan rituals that we've heard of. Even in you know modern day, one of the things... Uh, what was that book uh, that everybody freaked out about like 10 years ago? Um, da Vinci Code. And it talks about, you know, in that book, pagan uh, sexual practice. And that's what's going on here is that in front of everybody, the king was, was sleeping with these temple prostitutes, uh, with, these, uh, with these priestesses. They were, they were doing these rituals uh, for fertility and for new life and all of these things when Yahweh... The God of Israel had said, you don't need to worry about those things. If you, if you obey me and keep my commands, I will provide for you. I will see that there's new life and that there's fertility and the, the rains come and the crops grow. But he did all of these things in defiance of the God of Israel. It says in Ahab's time, Hillel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abram. And he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sigub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, the son of Nun. So way back, hundreds and hundreds of years before, when they had entered the promised land and God had taken down the walls of the city of Jericho and it was destroyed, God spoke through Joshua and says, this city is never to be rebuilt. This city is to be left desolate. Leave it in ruins as a reminder of the victory that God did, as a reminder that it was God who said, this is finished. And they rebuilt it. And there was a warning. If you do this, if you rebuild the foundations, there will be a cost. You will lose your firstborn son. If you rebuild the gates, your youngest son will perish. And you say, oh, that seems strict. You didn't have to rebuild the gates. You didn't have to rebuild this city. And yet there was such defiance of God. There was such casualness of God. They just said, I'll just do whatever I want. And I will rebuild this ancient city that God had said, leave it in ruins as a reminder, as a testimony. And he went, did it anyway. It cost him. He kept his rebellion. It cost him again. He kept going. These are the days that he lived in. Elijah is this prophet who is living in a, in a region. He's from a people that have a terrible spiritual history. And he is living in evil days, days that had not been seen in Israel for all of their problems, for all of the things that were going wrong. Everything at the second half of the book of the Judges, if you've never read that, it is horrific what was going on in Israel. And yet, despite all of that, this was somehow worse. And it says, verse 1, chapter 17, that Elijah the Tishbite said to Ahab the king, as the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve. And remember, he's saying as the Lord. He's saying as Yahweh, not Baal, not Ashtoreth, not Mot, not any of the Egyptian gods, not any of the Syrian gods, the Babylonian gods, not any of the gods of the people of the sea. As Yahweh, our God, whom I serve lives. There will neither be rain nor dew in the next few years except at my word. Who was in charge of the rain in, in the pantheon of, of, of the Canaanites? Baal. And who was the chief god that 
the king Ahab had given over himself and led the people to serve Baal. Now, with other prophets, it often says that something happened. Uh, You know, God spoke to them and then they went and delivered a message. God gave them a vision and then they wrote down what that vision was. God said, go and do this. And they went and did that thing. Elijah just comes out of nowhere. Elijah just comes out of nowhere and says to the king, this is going to happen. He was just a normal person. James, the book of James in the New Testament, talks about Elijah in chapter 5. And, it's, and, and in that, James says this, Elijah was just another human like you or me. He wasn't special. And I don't mean that to tear down the memory of Elijah. I mean that to say that we think of people as like, oh, they're more holy. They're more spiritual. They're the, like kind of the super people of spirituality, of faith. And what James is saying is, we're all just people. We're all start, you know, on the same playing field. He was just a normal guy. So here's a guy who's just a normal guy. He's not anything special. He's living in dark days, and he is among a people with a terrible spiritual history. But what does he do? The first thing is that he was faithful in unfaithful days. He was faithful in unfaithful days. 2 Kings chapter 17 talks about the destruction of the Assyrian Empire that they brought upon the northern kingdom of Israel, the kingdom that Ahab is ruling over. And It talks about how the Assyrians took the northern kingdom into captivity the same way that eventually the southern kingdom would be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. We talked about that a lot when we studied the book of Daniel. And the writer of 2 Kings is clear. This all happened because the people of the northern kingdom of Israel rebelled against God. They didn't keep his commands. They engaged in idolatry and immorality and all sorts of wickedness that came along with it. And in the midst of all of this, here is one guy, Elijah, who is faithful, who has not gone to the, the, the sacred groves, to, has not gone to the, the idols of Baal, has not gone and indulged himself in the Ashtarapole. He has stayed faithful to God in days that are unfaithful. You know, there are people who say, well, you know, I never did this. I never did that. Did you have the opportunity? There are sins that weren't committed in different days because the opportunity did not exist. But if you put them in a different situation, what would happen? Elijah had everything at his fingertips, as much as you could in that day and age. And yet he stayed faithful to God. In our day, we have everything at our fingertips. Everything's at our fingertips. You know, there, there's nothing that's withheld from us anymore. If you want to worship at Baal, you can do that. And we do, I believe, even sacrifice our children in different ways and shapes and forms as a culture. You can go and worship at the Ashtra poles. And now they may not be a, a sacred grove like they used to do, but it's not hard to do. And it's widespread. Oh, yes, those degenerates in Hollywood. Do you know where the number one place per capita for consumption of of adult entertainment is in America? It's Utah. It's not godless Hollywood. It's not Manhattan. It's not even Nashville. It's Utah. The place with the per capita highest 
consumption rate of adult entertainment. They are worshiping at the Astropoles in Provo and in Salt Lake and in American Fork and in St. George and all of these different places in the state of Utah that we think of as that they're moral people, they're upstanding people. They aren't, you know, no. Widespread. Everything is at our fingertips. The question is, do we, who are just normal people like Elijah, stay faithful in unfaithful days? What did he do? The first is that he stayed faithful. Doesn't mean he was perfect. Doesn't mean that he never did anything wrong. No. But it does mean that in his day, as best as he was able, he stood firm. And if you do nothing else, that is a great achievement. One of my favorite images of all time, of all time, is there's an image from Nazi Germany and there's this massive crowd and they're all giving the Ziegeil and the salutes and everything and there's one older man in the middle of the crowd who just stands there. He won't salute. He won't Ziegeil. He won't affirm. He's just there. He's staying faithful in unfaithful days. But he didn't just do that. James also tells us that he didn't, he wasn't just a normal person, but he was a person who prayed fervently. He got up and prayed. So here he is, he's staying faithful to God, but he's not inactive. He looks around his situation. We have the worst king we've ever had. And every four years, we get the worst president we've ever had, depending on who you talk to. And if it's not, then in four more years, there'll be a different president, and they will be the worst who we've ever had, right? That's how these things go. But here he's sitting around. Here's the worst king we've ever had. And the spiritual situation is terrible. And I know our history, and our history has been bad. So he begins to pray. And he prays specifically. No rain, no dew. He is praying specifically against Baal. He's praying specifically against, hey, you're worshiping the God who controls the rain and the crops and all of that? Then I'm going to pray against that. God, would you show yourself powerful and remove the rain from the northern kingdom of Israel? He focused on the big picture. He could have gone around nitpicking every little thing that was going on. He could have gone around and tried to get caught up in secondary issues, and I'm sure there were plenty of them. He could have gone and and gotten caught up in, in saying, we're going we're gonna to stand firm on these issues. Are they like live or die issues? No, but we're going to stand firm on them. He could have gone around and found like the littlest thing to nitpick. He could have gone around and said, can you believe that they're doing this, this, and that when over there they're sacrificing children? But he's like, yeah, but I, I really want to deal with this first. And in our day, there are those in the church, that's what they seem to want to do. They want to make a big deal out of little things. They want to nitpick over something small over there when something massive over there is happening. He didn't just pray specifically, but he focused on the big picture. Baal's the big picture. Ahab's the big picture. I'm going to focus on those things because they're the big deal. I'm not going to like get worked and bent out of shape over little things that, you know what, let's deal with the big stuff first. I appreciate that. He prayed, he prayed specifically, and he focused on the big picture, and things changed. Now look, praying comes easy to some people, and I'm not one of them. Why, why is it that we've made such a big deal about prayer in our church in the last several years? 
Our small groups focus on prayer. We have a, a big emphasis on prayer in our in-person Sunday morning service. Why is that? It's because I'm not good at praying. But I recognize that it is powerful and it is vital. And so we have to focus and double down on the things that matter. And that is prayer. Seeking God. Calling out to him. Saying, God, we need you to work. There are those who want to rally us. They want to rally us to political action. They want to rally us to this cause or that thing. Instead of saying, come, let's just pray together. Let's seek God together. Let's humble ourselves together. He focuses on specific things that are real issues. He focuses on the big picture. He's not getting sidetracked. And then what happens? God answers his prayer. The first time we have the word of the Lord coming to Elijah, it was after he prayed. God works differently for different people. Some of the prophets, God spoke to them and then they went and did their work. Some of the prophets received a vision and then they wrote it down. Elijah got up, saw the situation, and started to pray. And as he prayed, stuff happened, and then God spoke to him. Friends, let me say this, and this is going to come up time and time and time again with Elijah. And I think it is true for us in our day. Don't compare yourself to other Christians. If God chooses to speak to one of the prophets first, and he didn't choose to speak to Elijah first, that's God's business. The prophet that God spoke to had a responsibility to go. Elijah just stood up and prayed, and then God spoke to him. That's okay. How God works and moves in one person, and it's different in you than it is in somebody else, and that's okay. I don't need to compare. I don't need to judge myself on other people. God calls one person to do one thing. He calls another person to do another thing. And we say, praise the Lord that God is using people, even though it looks differently, it might take a different shape or form or happen in a different way, God is using them. Also, friends, as to know this, that there are times where we step out in faith. We step out in faith and say, you know what? I'm not going to cross this line. In faith, I'm going to stand firm in what I know that God has said is true or what God has said is right. Or in faith, I'm going to step out and I'm just going to start seeking God and I'm going to start praying, even though it seems impossible, even though it seems like nothing can change, even though it seems like this will never be solved. I am going to pray and pray and pray some more. And then God responds. And he responds first by answering his prayer. No rain. The rain ceases. A, a massive drought. Baal is shown weak and impotent because he's nothing more than an idol, a, an image carved out of wood or stone made by human hands of their own invention. And God, who created all things, who is not the invention of humans, says, I am powerful, I am supreme, I am true. And then God says, hey, Elijah, you've been faithful to me. You've been fervent in prayer. I want you to flee. Wait, what? God, I did this thing for you. I've stood for you. Why won't you protect me? Won't you stand up for me now, here in this moment? I was faithful. I was active in your service, in your cause. And God says, no, you need to flee. 
Just because God's speaking to us, it doesn't mean he's going to say the things we want to hear. Just because God is speaking to us, it doesn't mean that God is going to tell us that things are going to go the way we want them to go. He told Elijah to flee. Go out to the middle of nowhere, to this ravine near the Jordan River, and you are going to hide out there. And then... God says, I'm going to feed you because ravens are going to bring you bread and meat in the morning. It sounds to me like God supernaturally sends these birds to go steal bread and meat from different houses and farms or whatever in the area and bring them to Elijah enough for him to survive and eat. And so in the morning and in the evening, or sorry, bread in the morning, meat in the evening, all of a sudden he's provided with enough food. But here's the thing. The raven, the raven is an unclean bird. It's one, of the, it's one of the animals that the people of Israel were not to have anything to do with. They weren't to eat them. It was on that list of unclean animals you were not to eat. And God is feeding Elijah through what could be called unclean means, unclean resources. And you go, wait, what's going on there? Why would God do such a thing? Elijah stands firm and God says, you better run now. Elijah goes where God tells him. And then his source of, of nourishment is from like, God, what are you doing? I'm not going to pretend to know why God does what he does. If he doesn't explain it, I will say this. There are times and moments where God sustains his people through what we might call unclean means. There are moments where God has spoken and ministered to people, not through the words of a prophet, not through the songs of the church, not through some devotional gods. There have been times where, where somebody's just been watching a movie, reading a book, uh, talking to somebody who's not even a believer, and it's as if, boom, God says, all right, that's it. That's it. I've spoken to you now. That's it. This is what's happening. That's it. And you, and you receive that encouragement, that sustaining, even maybe that provision, and you go, wait, where did this come from? It didn't come from the way I think it should come from. It came from these ravens. And yet God knows what he's doing. It wasn't actually unclean for him to eat the bread. The bread, the meat were fine. It was just brought through an, a source that they would have looked down on. God is really messing with Elijah. I've stayed faithful. I've stayed true. And now God's like, all right, flee. I'm going to provide for you in a way that you may not like. And then I'm going to change plans on you without warning. It says that sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And God hadn't yet told Elijah to pray and to seek him so that rain could return. And the brook dries up because there's no more rain. And then the word of the Lord came to him and said, go to the region of Sidon. That's the same place that the evil queen Jezebel is from. I want you to leave the promised land. I want you to go live among people that do not worship me, and they're going to provide for you. Wait, I thought the plan was the brook. I'm here. You bring bread and meat with the birds. That's weird, but I can, okay, fine. The, the brook provides water. I have everything I need here. I'm just hanging out until you tell me. And God says, no, change of plans. I want you to go over there now. And you're going to go live with this widow, and she is going to provide for you. What happens if you're being faithful? If you're seeking God in prayer, 
And God is seeming to do some stuff, and then all of a sudden plans change, and you have to pivot. And you say, that's not fair, God. I thought we were doing this. And God says, yeah, we were doing that thing, but now it's time to do this other thing. And you say, well, I don't like that. And it's there we have to ask ourselves the question, are we the servant of God, or are we trying to tell God what to do? Are we the servant of God or are we seeking God to serve us and our desires and our whims and what we think is right and proper? He's doing the right thing. He's faithful in unfaithful days. He's praying. Instead of going out and like just saying, I'm done, I've, I've fed up with how things are, I'm out, I'm going to walk away. He gets involved and he gets active in trying to make things better and he starts to pray. Instead of seeking to kill the king, he's praying that God would change the king's heart. And then what does God do? Oh, he answers his prayer, but then he says, flee. And then he provides provision through this way that's like, wait, what are you doing? That's not right. That's not the way I would want it. And then without warning, it changes his plans. And it's in this moment that Elijah must choose, just like each and every one of us will have to choose at different points and seasons of our lives, am I going to follow God wherever he leads? Or is there a point where I say, you know what, God? I followed you on fleeing. The ravens were weird, but I, okay, fine. At least there's food. But now you've dried up this brook and you're telling me to go and to go among people who are your enemies and who are my enemies? Will we be the servants of God when God speaks? Will we be the servants of God when God commands? There's never a point, and be clear about this, there's never a point where God tells Elijah to do a sinful thing. There's never a point where God tells Elijah to do something that would be against the word of God, that would be against the Ten Commandments, that would be against any of those things. There are points where God tells Elijah to do things that would be culturally weird for him, that would go against the traditions of, of how he sees the world should be. Maybe God is upsetting Elijah's view of things. The word of God is never going to come to somebody and tell you to do something that is blatantly sinful. The word of God is never going to come to you. You're never going to have God speak to you or have somebody speak into your life or say, the Bible told me to, to do something that is inherently sinful. But God may do things that shake us up, that call us to do something that we go, wait, wait, what? And that's going to look different for different people. You know, in, in one place, it might mean, I, look, I've known people, when God called them to do something specific and they were like, huh? Because God told them to dress up. I'm going to use this specifically. You know, there's that movie that came out this last year that was kind of popular, the Jesus Revolution film. And I grew up in the group of churches that that film kind of takes place in. And what happened there was these really traditional churches and these really traditional pastors. And God said, hey, loosen up, man. Ditch the suit and tie. Just be a normal person and connect with the people around you and accept people where they're at and bring them in so that I can do my work. But I also know people who came from a really chill kind of church, loose, you know, hey, there's, you know, show up however you want. There's no rules, whatever. And then God called them to go work in a different community. And there they had to dress up 
and they had to be kind of traditional and conservative in how they presented themselves. And they said, you know what? It was what we needed to do so that we had the ability to minister to those people. It wasn't evil. It wasn't sinful. We weren't being legalistic. In one case, God told somebody to take the suit and tie off and just dress normal. In another case, God told somebody, hey, get your fine clothes on, your traditional clothes, and go and be among those people. What I'm saying is, is that God is going to call all of us to do something that might make us uncomfortable, to minister to somebody that might be outside of our norms. But if Faith on Hill or any church that loves Jesus is a place of refuge and safety from the world around us, then that means we're going to deal with people with different backgrounds, situations, that we're going to go, wait, what's going on here? And maybe God is going to move or make opportunity in ways that we say, hey, wait a minute, that's not what you did before. That's not how churches worked before. And God's saying, yeah, I'm going to do something new and something different. Are you ready? And that's the question. I've mostly spoken to believers and church people. And that's fine. And I think that that's a challenge to all who are church people, believers, all of that. But the thing to remember if you're not a Christian, the thing to remember if you're watching this and you don't have a church background, but you're going, hey, I don't know, is, is this Jesus thing something I should consider? Remember this. Elijah was speaking out against all of the things that the world around him thought was perfectly normal and even right and good. And there are things within the Christian faith that bump against our culture. They bump against old culture and young culture. They bump against traditional culture and modern culture. They bump against rural culture and urban culture. They bump against liberal and conservative because the Bible speaks to all of humanity. And there are going to be things that we go, wait, what? Why, why does God have an issue with that? But here is what I know to be true, that Jesus is worth finding out about Jesus is worth following, even if he might be saying, hey, there's this thing that you're a part of that needs to change. You go, what? what's wrong with that? And Jesus is saying, trust me, come along. I actually have something better for you. And there is an invitation, just like Elijah was faithful in days that were full of, of just all kinds of sin. What we're trying to do is be faithful to Jesus as best we can in these days and say, Jesus has made the way of salvation. And this world around us is going crazy. It, this world around us is falling apart. Jesus is the answer. And so if you're a church person, God might be calling you to give that message in a way that makes you totally uncomfortable and take you places that you would never have gone on your own if you're not a church person. Jesus is inviting you in, even though everything that, that you're about says, well, this is right and normal. Why would God say something different? It's because he knows the truth and he knows what's best and he knows how we were designed and he is making all things new and bringing us into a family and a kingdom that is how things were supposed to be. We're not there yet, but we're on our way. If you have any questions, I prefer questions over just like, hey, this is what I think and you have to listen. I'd rather just have conversations and questions and dialogue. My email is adam at faithonhill.com. I'm I'm preaching live every Sunday morning. We have small groups. Come on in. Be part of the conversation. Ask your questions. God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. You can follow us, uh, subscribe, like, all that kind of stuff to get all of our podcast content. And we'll see you again next time as we continue to learn more about the life of the prophet Elijah. You're